Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Well, here we go. Bum, bum, bum. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Say it with me, everyone. It's the economy, stupid. James Carville, the Democratic strategist, famously coined that phrase while working on Bill Clinton's presidential campaign in 1992. What he meant was that people vote with their pocketbooks. So in other words, when the economy's strong, the incumbent wins. That is really the economy. (laughs) And since 1992, that phrase has been used over and over and over again. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. And it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid! There are even songs dedicated to it. A victory sign, a mantra, an explanation, a reminder, a warning, an omen, an onus, a threat. It's the economy, stupid. So anyway, the question is, Will this concept hold true in 2020? Because by many standards, the economy is doing great, at least for some people. It grew at an unexpectedly high pace of 3% in the first quarter of this year. The stock market is surging. Wages are up. Unemployment is down. And according to the job report released on Friday, the U.S. economy added 263,000 jobs in April, continuing a record hiring streak. The Trump administration seems to think these facts will help the president win re-election. Last week, Trump went to Wisconsin, a swing state, and talked about the economy. A lot. And you've heard me say this a hundred times, but I say it again and I'll keep saying 3.2% in the first quarter. GDP crushing expectations. The unemployment rates for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans have all reached... Their lowest levels in the history of our country. Wages are rising for the first time in 21 years. And in Los Angeles this week, Mick Mulvaney, President Trump's chief of staff, actually said the phrase. You hate to sound like a cliche, but are you better off than you were four years ago? It's pretty simple, right? It's the economy, Stu, but I think that's easy. Still, Democratic presidential candidates see some problems with Trump's economy. There was a $2 trillion tax cut last, last year. Did you feel it? Did you get anything from it? Of course not. America's middle class is getting hollowed out, and opportunity for too many of our young people is shrinking. The top one-tenth of one percent owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders are speaking to a frustration that many Americans are feeling. A new Washington Post-ABC poll shows that most people feel that our economic system benefits those in power. And 54% of voters overall disapprove of Trump's performance as president. So in 2020, is it still going to come down to it's the economy, stupid? A healthy economy leads to an incumbent being reelected? Or is it no longer the economy, stupid? Or do we need to redefine what a healthy economy looks like? These are all the questions we're tackling today. And we begin with Kevin Hassett, chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and he says he expects the economic growth we've been seeing to continue. Our economic forecast for the year is that GDP growth will go up 3.2 percentage points. 
Because of the tax cuts, the U.S. is a much more attractive place to locate factories, and we expect a lot of factories to move back to the U.S. and new factories to be put up here and so on. And we saw a lot of that activity start off last year. There was 9% more capital spending last year than the year before. This year, we get more capital spending again, but we also get all, the, all those factories that were built last year. You know, they turn on the lights, they start the machines, they start producing output. And so we expect that growth relative to last year will accelerate just a little bit. So there are two questions I have about the taxes. The first is the discussion among a lot of folks um, in and out of Washington was that the tax cuts were something of a sugar high and that eventually it would dissipate and that keeping growth above 3% was going to be difficult to maintain. What do you say to that? You know, what's happening is that we went from being the high corporate tax place on earth to being an attractive place. The transition from sort of the equilibrium of being the high tax place to the equilibrium of being a low tax place is not something that you jump to overnight. It's something that's a gradual adjustment period, takes three to five years. There's also an interesting disconnect between how regular Americans feel about the tax cut and then the success to which you attribute economic growth to the tax cut. Majority of Americans, they don't believe that the tax cuts helped them. Only 14% said their taxes have gone down because of new tax law overall has a low approval rating. How do you explain that disconnect? Well, I think that the sentiment measures that matter are all very positive, like the Michigan survey and so on. And the Michigan survey is a consumer spending, basically, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, But You know, I I think that when people are asked an academic question to make a judgment about something that requires like reading a big literature, you know, maybe they don't have a great deal of confidence that they're able to make that judgment. But the fact is that consumer sentiment is skyrocketing. The economy is skyrocketing. The economy and people recognize that. That's why their sentiment is so high. And, And the economy is skyrocketing because of the tax cuts. And I guess the last link to make people really uh, believe that is something that's a political task, not an economic one, and I'm just an economist. So your point is, it doesn't matter what what they think of the actual tax cut in itself, because the consumer sentiment is so positive right now. People believe the economy is doing better. How they feel about the actual policy of tax cuts is less important. Right. And, And without like speaking to the particulars of this president and trying to, you know, uphold the tradition of CEA not being partisan. If you're even going to think about like the political repercussions of growth or the lack thereof, that it's pretty strong from the work of Ray Fair at Yale University, that when economic growth is strong, the party of the incumbent tends to do very well in a presidential election. You have a long history of working in Washington. I know you have a non-political job, but you made a very important connection between traditionally the president's party does well when the economy does well, the president does well when the economy does well. But we have not seen the president's overall approval rating tick up with the rise in the GDP, et cetera. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I'm not an expert on approval ratings. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but again, like, like the Rayfair uh, evidence is based on actual voting patterns. I think it's the voting patterns that matter the most. And so Rayfair's results connecting a strong economy to vote shares is you know very favorable uh, for President Trump right now. And what do you think it said in 2018 that in a favorable economy, Republicans didn't do well, at least on the House side? You know, mid- midterm elections are what, what they are. <laughs> It's pretty common for them to have a pattern like that, irrespective of the economy. The other question about 2019 is what else needs to happen that's currently sort of in the works 
that could either contribute to GDP continuing to grow or could actually hurt it. Tell me about the importance of getting these three big things done. I know you mentioned them in your report, infrastructure, the China trade deal, and NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA. So USMCA, the ITC came out with a report, said that it would add, they had a range of estimates, but potentially tens of billions to hundreds of billions of dollars to GDP. The fact is that USMCA would be a big positive if it were to pass this year. The next thing, the China trade deal, those talks continue. We're quite hopeful that they'll come to a conclusion sometime soon. That's another big upside. If you think about it, all of the uncertainty over tariffs and everything else that was going on last year, we still grew 3%. So if you take that turmoil away, you should go up from there. Those are the two near-term things. The infrastructure uh, bill, which you know there were some talks in the White House about that were uh, very positive, is something that's a big positive for long-run growth, but not necessarily uh, very much of a big deal between now and the next election because infrastructure takes a while to get off the ground. The one challenge, though, it does seem is the fact that the USMCA, while it has been negotiated, it hasn't passed Congress yet, and there seems to be a number of speed bumps in the way, both in the Democratic House, but also among Republican senators. Chuck Grassley said that the tariffs must be dropped or else there's no deal. Does that change your opinion, though, about whether we can see a trade policy pass Congress? Yeah, I'm not a political handicapper, but I think that the economics of the deal are really, really solid. So I think that in the end, deals like this pass with broad bipartisan support, and I would expect this one would too. But the tariffs seem to be a real biting issue, especially we've talked to folks, especially in farm belt states, who have been hit really hard by these and want to see the tariffs lifted. If they aren't, do you see that this could have a real impact on the agriculture industry and obviously as a corollary on passage of a trade deal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of support for passage of a trade deal. And there have definitely been, you know, pockets of the economy that have been hit by retaliation and harmed by retaliation because farmers are so important to the fabric of America. They've unfortunately been the target of some of the retaliation in response to the sort of things the president did to draw people to the reform table. The upside risks uh, for farmers are very high in the sense that it should be a very good year for them if these deals are realized. Would your advice to farmers be to say, hold on, help is on the way? Well, help has already come in the sense that Sonny Purdue at the Department of Agriculture has been all over using existing programs to make sure that farmers who are harmed by retaliatory uh, trade actions are covered by existing programs, which compensate them for that. Last I checked, $12 billion of uh, assistance went out to farmers who were affected by retaliation. And, and so you know, help is already uh, organized and on the way or delivered. But I think that you know, more good news is presumably going to be coming sometime soon as the trade deals close. So once the trade deal is done, then that means the tariffs are lifted. Is that ideally it? Certainly, I can't get ahead of like the final details of a trade deal. But one would expect globally that as we move towards 
you know, reform where everybody has open access to everybody else's market with few barriers that there would be lots of reciprocal uh, reduction in tariffs. Yeah. We've been hearing a lot from Democrats on the campaign trail who've been making this issue of economic inequality a centerpiece of their campaign. I'm wondering if you think and the administration believes that we have an economic inequality crisis in the U.S.? I think that the administration is eager to engage on the issue of inequality because I think that in the name of inequality, a lot of policies have been pushed in the past, which have you know made the economy worse and disproportionately hurt people at the bottom. And so, you know, wage growth at the bottom right now is higher than it is for other parts. Homelessness is down since 2010 by about 50% amongst uh, veterans and African-American unemployment rate or the unemployment rate for people without a college degree. Those are all at or near all-time lows. We 100% think that our policies were designed to help ordinary folks, blue-collar workers, and it's clear that the policies are working. And so we look forward to it debate about how best to help uh, the poor. Kevin Hassett, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. Kevin Hassett is chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And you've been telling us how you feel about the economy. Does the economy feel strong? Most people that I know don't really have much faith in it right now. The economy is booming, but I live in the la-la land of Silicon Valley, where every shop has a help wanted sign, and the non-tech workers live in their cars. The economy's doing good, but food costs more, gas costs more. No, the current economy doesn't feel strong to me. The word that describes my feelings about it is precarious. It may not be dire, but it's not booming either. Last year, the economy grew at a rate of about 3%. Kevin Hassett told me that he thinks this year we won't just meet this rate, but exceed it. Our economic forecast for the year is that GDP growth will go up 3.2 percentage points. And so we expect that growth relative to last year will accelerate just a little bit. But do other economists, not affiliated with the White House, agree? I checked in with Heather Long, the economics correspondent for The Washington Post. This is really the fundamental debate about the economy right now. How hot is it? Mm -hmm. The White House wants to say it's hot, 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 hot. And when they make this argument that 2019 could be better growth than 2018, they are pretty much the only people saying that. Almost everybody else outside the White House thinks we're going to slow. The question is how much? Back in December, January, when the stock market was uh, coming down and there were a lot of fears about the slowdown in Europe and China and how that was going to drag the U.S. down too, a lot of economists were predicting that 2019 would be more like 2% growth. Now we had this better than expected first quarter. People are revising their forecasts up to about 2.5%. And that would feel substantially better than recent years. It's above trend growth. And if the economy can keep this more like a 2.5% growth this year, that's going to be very good news heading into election 2020. Okay, so maybe the economy won't grow quite as quickly as the White House is forecasting, but it's still going to grow pretty fast. This still seems like a rosy economic picture. Except Heather Long says there's one problem. 
where there starts to be a little bit of question mark is we have also seen rising inequality, and that's where everyone's struggling across the political spectrum to figure out ways to ensure that this clearly growing pie is divided up to help the middle and working class. That is what I want to ask you about. I'm wondering if you can compare the economic inequality we're seeing right now to where we've been in the past. What did it look like, for example, even just in the late 90s when the economy was also booming? Our best reads on income inequality in this country or wealth inequality. So wealth is taking into account all your stocks and your home and your other assets is that inequality right now is the worst it's been since the 1920s. This is not where we want to be as a country. In the 1990s, we saw faster wage growth. That helped close that gap a little bit. We also, while CEO pay was very high in the late 1990s, it's gotten even higher now. That's one of the reasons we're seeing more dramatic inequality today than we did even in the 1990s period. I realize it's more complicated than this, but if you could sort of point to the factors driving this inequality, I hear about so many things being blamed specifically. One is automation, that jobs are simply no longer there anymore. Democrats are talking about greedy CEOs and corporations that are taking money that should be spent on increasing wages, instead delivering it to their shareholders. Greed is not good. If Wall Street does not end its greed, we will end it for them. And then there's the debate about education. You can no longer get a well-paying job without a higher level of education than you needed. Are all three of those things equally important? Those factors are definitely key to the inequality story. But for me, the easiest way to think about why the economy is so different in 2019 compared to, say, 1999 is when you look at the 10 fastest growing jobs right now, six of them pay $30,000 or less. They're jobs like food service prep and home health care workers. Most of those other jobs that are the fastest growing pay 90,000 or more. So we basically don't have a lot of middle class jobs that are growing very quickly right now. We've got this bifurcated economy. And that's a very different dynamic than what we saw prior to 2000 in this country. There's a lot that's playing into that. The biggest force of all is, you mentioned automation, perhaps some trade and, and offshoring. But most economists think it's this automation trend. And that's happening both in the manufacturing sector and in urban areas where we're getting rid of folks who used to be secretaries and clerks and these very solid middle class urban jobs that just aren't there anymore. So not to get too pessimistic here, but we can if that's necessary. But when I hear you saying we have an inequality problem that we have not seen since the 1920s, I instantly go to, oh, well, Gosh, we also, right around that time, had a Great Depression. So is that kind of where we're headed? I mean, is there what happens when there is an uncontrolled growth and gap between those who are doing well and those who are barely getting by? 
Well, we're already seeing it in the rise of populism, not、yeah. just in this country, but in Europe and, and even in emerging market countries like Brazil. That's starting to shape our, our political forces and our economic policies that are being made in Washington D.C. and beyond.、Uh, I was at a meeting this week with executives from a Wall Street firm, and the, half the conversation was about populism and how that's going to shape economic policies for years to come. So. We are kind of at an inflection point, I think, in this country, and a lot of that's going to come to head in the 2020、uh, election cycle. The White House and President Trump, when I speak to his top economic advisors, they argue that the way to cure this inequality, the way to make this country better and lift more people up, is simply to keep growth high. And to keep this economy powering ahead, and that's why the president is trying to do all of these policies suddenly. Many with Democrats like infrastructure bills, beefing up the budget. He's trying to just keep stimulating this economy, much as he did with the tax cuts, because that's what he thinks is going to help more people. The opposite view is being played out in the Democratic field, and that's much more of a belief that we need to do some sort of redistribution of wealth. That if we just keep growing the economy, the benefits are only going to keep, or mainly keep, going to the top, and we actually need to do policies where we raise taxes or do a wealth tax, as Elizabeth Warren's proposing, and we use that money to pay for better education and more higher education or other policies、mm. for a broader range of people. In other economic news, the Federal Reserve announced this week that it is keeping interest rates unchanged, despite President Trump's calls for them to be lowered. Heather Long was there when the announcement was made in what is called the Federal Reserve lockup. They make us get into a basement. It feels like a bunker. They cut all contact to the outside world. We pound out our stories really quickly. It's like the worst SAT exam, writing exam of、uh, your life. That sounds. Horrible. I mean, I really, really hated the SATs. Anyway, the Federal Reserve was set up to operate independently from the White House to give it leeway to make decisions that are best for the long-term economic health of the country. Still, Heather Long says President Trump is not the first to try to influence the Fed's decision-making process. The reality is, all presidents want low interest rates, particularly ahead of an election, because those lower interest rates are likely to spur higher stock market and faster economic growth. So President Trump is not alone in desiring that outcome. What is different with President Trump is how vocal he is. He has tweeted six times between March and the May meeting that we just had this week about the Federal Reserve. That is pretty unusual. We have seen、uh, President Reagan did pull the chair of the Federal Reserve into a back room and quietly try to urge him not to raise interest rates. But President Trump obviously is not a behind closed doors kind of man. Help us also to understand what's going on with the president's picks for the Federal Reserve. I don't remember there ever being a time where a pick for a board was considered controversial. But just in the last couple of weeks, we've already had two very controversial picks: Herman Cain and Stephen Moore. What does this say about the process that Trump is using to pick these two people? And what do we think it means going forward? Who he picks to replace them? 
It used to be that the Federal Reserve would send over to the White House a list of people they thought were qualified. The president's top economic advisors would look through the list and then recommend that the president meet a few of these people, and then they would go through a vetting process, and and then they would announce them to the public. But as of January, so right after the Fed made its fourth rate hike last year in December, and the market dropped pretty sharply. President Trump decided to take matters into his own hands. That's how he became enamored with the idea of nominating Herman Cain, the businessman and former presidential candidate, and nominating Stephen Moore, a conservative economics commentator who's helped advise the president on his tax plan. Basically, what does Trump want? What's he really, really want at the end of the day? He wants to win re-election, and he thinks that. By getting more of his quote unquote his believers onto the Fed, he might have a better chance of keeping interest rates lower.、Mm. So, if Steve Moore and Herman Cain, two people he saw as loyalists who were on his team, are no longer going for Senate confirmation, does this suggest that the next nominees are going to be more sort of traditional? Republican picks, not Trumpian loyalists. This was obviously a big burn for the president. It would be a big burn for any president to put up two nominees and have them both cut down by his own party.、Right. Going forward, my hunch would be that they will look for people who have a high likelihood of getting through Senate confirmation, but agree with President Trump on sort of supply side economics. This notion that the tax cuts that Trump and Acted are having an impact. Names that I'm hearing floated around. These are very early speculation, but Larry Lindsey, who was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, and actually Kevin Hassett has been. I've heard whispers about him. Again, none of this is confirmed. Very early days of whispering, but both of those、uh, men would have a very high chance of getting、um, confirmed. I think in the Senate, whether or not they'd be lo- perfectly loyal, as loyal as Trump wants, probably they. Wouldn't be like Moore and Cain, but they certainly agree broadly with the idea that these tax cuts will be good for the country. Heather Long, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Another important factor impacting the economy is trade. The Trump administration has increased tariffs on steel and aluminum imports as a means of pressuring China to come to the table to negotiate a new trade deal. In return, farmers in the U.S. have been hit. With retaliatory tariffs, that brings us to Wisconsin, America's Dairyland. I am Denise Murray. I am a farmer slash farmer's wife from Kendall, Wisconsin. Dairy farmers here were already suffering from low milk prices. The tariffs made things worse. For Denise, that's meant selling her cows. We started by culling a few, and that selling a few that. Had health problems and such. Over the course of a couple weeks, then we sold a few more, and then finally the last load went、um, on April 12th. And it's still weird. It it feels very different not to have them here. I spoke to Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher. He represents the Eighth District in Wisconsin, and I asked him how the tariffs are impacting the farmers in his constituency. The 232 tariffs have caused a lot of Wisconsin farmers to get caught、uh, in the crossfire, and so at a time when milk prices are already low, that certainly doesn't help. And my hope is, if we can pass 
the new NAFTA, USMCA, which on balance is very good for dairy, and at the same time resolve the 232 issues, I think that would be a win-win for Wisconsin farmers. And I think that would go a long way towards helping them out at a time that is very, very difficult right now. There is some skepticism that the new NAFTA USMCA is going to even get onto the House floor. That would be a shame, but the reality is we're in a presidential election season and it seems like everything's getting sucked into that black hole. The more our politics focuses on just the presidential election, it becomes an excuse to punt things, and that's unacceptable. Now, there are some folks on the Republican side, though, at least on the Senate side, who are saying... We are not going to even move forward on discussion about putting the USMCA on the floor until the president agrees to take off these tariffs. You've also said, I want to see these tariffs rolled back. Can the White House do both, roll back the tariffs and also ensure that this trade bill gets through? They can and and they must. I think to have robust Republican support for USMCA, they're going to have to resolve the 232 issues, which, again, is the top concern I hear from dairy farmers in northeast Wisconsin. And so I think if they do that, then they can simultaneously build support to get a bigger win on USMCA. At what point do farmers say, I can't wait? any longer for these things to be resolved. I mean, again, we, we talked to one farmer in your state who just finished up selling the last of her cows. And I'm wondering if there are other farmers who are thinking, you know what, it's just a matter of time before I have to do that too. I think there are. I mean, I, again, I, 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 I think that particularly if you're a medium size or a, a small size dairy, you're struggling to survive right now. And so while we try and move forward on 232 and USMCA, some other things we can do to help those farmers out in the meantime include making sure that the dairy margin coverage program that we revised in the 2018 Farm Bill that would provide relief to farmers while they endured the pain of tariffs is actually implemented. It was initially, if I remember correctly, supposed to be made available to farmers in early March, but now the sign-up period looks like it won't begin until June 17th, and I don't think we should keep expecting them to weather the storm unless they have clarity and access to these important programs. And so myself and some of my colleagues recently sent a letter to Secretary Purdue to that effect. But I, I agree with the premise of your question. I mean, farmers in Wisconsin are sympathetic to the Trump administration. In many cases, they may have voted for Trump, and, and they're sympathetic to what the president is trying to achieve. But we shouldn't force them to make that difficult choice of whether to sell as we go down this road of trying to ensure fairer tariff barriers around the world. Congressman Gallagher, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. So we asked Denise Murray, the Wisconsin dairy farmer, how she thought farmers were feeling about supporting the president in 2020. I'm not sure if he's going to win the uh, votes of other farmers for myself, I guess, Somebody needs to figure out, and I'm not sure how to do it, how to help the farmers, how we can get a better price for the milk. That will help a lot. America's farmers, they're an important constituency to watch as we head into 2020. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, 
wherever you get podcasts. All this hour, we've been talking about the economy and whether or not a strong economy is enough to secure a second term for President Trump. In other words, is it really the economy, stupid? Well, we're testing the limits of that theory. That is... Scott Clement. I'm the polling director at The Washington Post. Ever since Trump entered office, uh, the economy has been improving and continuing some of the same trajectory that it had been on. And a normal president in a normal expectation should be enjoying majority job approval ratings. But Trump really hasn't. And we saw a first big election in 2018, which was our first hint of do, do the rules of political gravity still work? And we had a big majority of voters saying the economy is in good shape and the party in power really losing by quite a margin. Okay, so polls show the president is getting positive marks for his handling of the economy, but his overall approval ratings are very weak. I asked Scott how he squares those things. Well, the simplistic explanation is that there are other things than the economy that uh, people disapprove of Trump for, and those are holding him back. Uh, It's really the opposite that we saw for Barack Obama. I look back at our April 2011 survey, uh, roughly a similar point in Obama's term, and and then 47 percent approved of uh, Obama overall, but 42 percent approved of how he was handling the economy. Uh, So he he was getting better ratings than uh, overall than he did for the economy. Trump is getting significantly worse ratings. So which matters more than Scott, do you think, the the president's overall approval rating or the president's approval rating on the economy? I think overall, I think the economy rating is telling in how people will uh, interpret uh, the the positive economy and and how much it matters. But my sense is that people are going to bake that in. They're going to take that into account when they rate Trump overall and that when they go to the ballot box, they're going to be thinking about Trump and his opponent and not a specific issue. When you ask voters what they think about the economy, what is their answer to that? You know, when we've been asking in past years just general ratings of the economy, we've been seeing them rising. Uh, But we tried a different question uh, in our latest survey. And we asked people one about the economic system overall, whether it is one that works for all people or whether it's one that uh, mainly favors those in power. And uh, we found a surprisingly negative result, I think, compared to the overall positive views of the economy. Clear majorities of Democrats and independents uh, and the public overall said that the economic system mainly works for uh, those in power rather than uh, people overall. A majority of Republicans said the opposite. Uh, They saw the economy working positively for everybody. What does this tell us that more than half of Americans believe that the economic system benefits those in power more than regular people? In a basic sense, it runs against uh, a central ideal for the idea that people can get ahead. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen many questions over the years about whether, you know, hard work pays off. Well, if the economic system is benefiting only one, uh, one group of people, in this case, people in power, uh, rather than all people, uh, you have a challenge to that basic element of fairness. And I think that's some of the motivation behind the messages of Senators uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' campaign. So we're interested in how much that actually resonates. And so it was a simple question. We asked also a similar question on whether the political system benefits those in power or all mm-hmm. people. Um, and it was interesting to compare those and see uh, both how, how partisans broke down, but also how different uh, groups broke down. The partisan differences were the biggest on uh, the economic question, uh, which I think is interesting. It shows maybe that 
partisans have, feel like they have some stake in this question at the moment. Perhaps Republicans feel motivated to defend the economic system at this moment with their parties uh, in control of the presidency. But the views were pretty lopsided, uh, both among Republicans and independents and Democrats, not a lot of close division. Whereas if you look down education and income groups, there weren't as big gaps. I mean, in some ways, this isn't particularly surprising. We're at a time when everyone from the president to folks in Congress to those trying to run for president or run for Congress saying that the system is rigged. So was this a surprising result for you? In some ways, no. I think uh, we've seen people criticize the political system for a long time. In the other way, it's also, I think, remarkable that it's there at this moment. So we have a president who really ran against the status quo, particularly on the political side, uh, but also speaking some some language on economic issues that uh, many Republicans had avoided uh, for years. And this year, instead of really fighting back on that and saying, you know what, the economic status quo is fine, we need to get out of these trade wars, we need to go back to traditional capitalism, a few Democratic candidates have really pushed the envelope on this and pushed more ambitious, uh, really anti-establishment economic policies. So I was really interested in seeing how partisans broke down on this. How are they taking in all these debates which are breaching some new territory? And who's willing to defend the economic system? Uh, and that's that's one big question. We have you know, Joe Biden, of course, starting his campaign, saying he's not a socialist. We're about to have a big debate over the economic system in this country and interested in what people think, given that we know that people are feeling pretty good. Scott, how are you going to measure all of this as we think about polling in these next couple of years? What are the things we should be looking for to see what's resonating with folks? We hear the president use the term socialist a lot. And of course, with Democrats, they're lambasting the president's tax cuts as saying they're just favoring the wealthy. What is going to matter? So I don't know. And I think we're going to have to ask a lot of different questions to find out. I think this is a real first step in that uh, for us and you know, trying to build on what's there. We, we, we can learn from everything that's been done in the past and, and how you know, overall economic ratings, of course, are critical. And we have to keep following those and tracking those. But some candidates, Democratic candidates, are challenging the status quo of the economy in a different way. And we don't know whether that's really going to resonate until we ask about it. Uh, and we also want to know whether this ends up mattering in people's vote. I think there's some signs in this poll that these types of concerns do matter to voters, uh, that they, they are predictive of people's willingness to reelect Trump and the, the degree to which they're, uh, they'll give him credit for the economy. Uh, but this isn't the only question on um, going after. And, and, and I think it's not even clear that what we know now and how people are reacting now will be the same as it will uh, as we get closer to the general election. The economy continues to grow or even accelerates. That could push people over the line to giving Trump much more credit for the economy. I don't know that, but it's a possibility. Scott Clement, thank you so much for helping us understand all of this. Certainly. Thanks for having me join. Scott Clement is the polling director for The Washington Post. Let's take a step back now to talk about what happened in 2016. Following that election, a narrative emerged and it went something like this. Donald Trump won because his economic message was successful. Lynn Vavarek is the Marvin Hoffenberg Chair of American Politics at UCLA. She's been studying the economy and presidential elections for more than a decade. 
And after the 2016 election, she and two colleagues, John Sides and Michael Tesler, decided to take a closer look at what really happened. Their work culminated in a book, Identity Crisis, the 2016 Presidential Campaign, and the Battle for the Meaning of America. What we were able to do is using a lot of data that we collected since 2011 show that one of the ways that Trump was successful in making an argument about jobs and the economy was to refract that argument through a lens of identity. And what we mean by that is it wasn't just about losing your job. It was about losing your job to an undocumented worker or to people who have just newly arrived in the United States, who haven't waited for their turn in line. And and he did that a lot, not just with the economy, with foreign policy, um, with terrorism. So he was using identity to activate these issues in a more powerful way. So when I hear Republican sort of establishment folks say, man, I wish the president would just focus on the economy. The economy is doing so well. But then he goes off and he does his immigration stuff or he goes and he bashes some other person on Twitter. This is his problem. What do you say to that, that if he just focused more on the economy – things would look so much better for him and for his party in the next election. I think it's great advice, especially if the economy continues to grow the way it's growing. We're in this period of very, very strong growth. And if this were 2020 and we were seeing these kinds of numbers, I would tell the incumbent president, don't talk about anything else. Now, there is, I think, some evidence that he is doing that. So he has taken credit in the last few days for these growth numbers without bringing any kind of identity-inflected issue into that. He's just boldly claiming credit for the economy. So I think that's an indication that if we see this kind of growth in 2020, he will probably do that. The real question is, will we see this kind of growth continue um, into the first six months of the election year? And are the first six months for voters, is that when they really start to make this connection between the economy and their vote for the president? There's a strong relationship between growth rate or real disposable income, the actual number, not people's perceptions of the economy, but the actual performance There's a strong relationship between those numbers in the first six months of an election year and whether or not the incumbent party gets reelected in the presidential election. So whether it's just that voters' memories are short, whether it's that they think the immediate past is the best guide to the immediate future, we don't really know why. But those six months seem to be a very good predictor of a better-than-chance predictor of which party will win. When we talked earlier about the fact that if, you know, if Trump just keeps focused on the economy, that would be a really good strategy, could help him win in 2020. But I'm wondering if it's, like, too late for that, that voters' perceptions of this president are pretty well-hardened and that even those who are doing well in this economy say they don't like him and they're not interested in voting for him in 2020. I think certainly there's a little bit of that. And you can see that in some polling results when pollsters will ask, would you consider voting for someone other than Trump in the Republican Party? 
did you vote for him before? Are you going to vote for him again? You can see that there are people who um, whose support is weak, but I would not go so far as to say it's too late for him. Mm. A growing economy, the economy is always important to people. Some people will argue that it's becoming less important at the as these identity issues become more important. But I, I haven't really seen a lot of evidence of that. The 2016 election was exactly where we would have predicted it to be based on these past economic performances and past campaigns. So if I had to bet today, I would say strong economy, really good chance the incumbent party gets reelected, e- even if the candidate is Donald Trump. Can we switch to the Democrats for a minute? And if you can look uh, or give us your take on the messaging we've seen from some of the 2020 candidates thus far, it seems like there are a couple of ways that they're framing the economy in this election. One is the system's rigged. We need to do real deep structural reform. The other that kind of dovetails with this is, well, it's Trump and his policies. They say that they're for the little guy, but really we know the tax cuts and everything else they've done have been focused on the richest people. Is that the right kind of messaging for Democrats? I mean, what do you do as the out party in trying to make a case on the economy especially when the economy, again, as you said, factually is doing well. You don't. <laughs> and so I I just think that I would not advise anyone to take any of those messages um, and, and build a campaign around them. If you can think back to 1984 and Ronald Reagan. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Looking back, knowing what you know now, would you advise Walter Mondale to contest that election based on the economy? This is the situation that we're talking about. And it is in 1984 and things are different. But the basic strategy is the same. If the growth rate is, you know, 3.6% a year from now, and you're a Democrat running against the incumbent Republican, even if it's Donald Trump, you don't want to be fighting with him on which economic reality is the real one. There is a real economic reality. People understand what that is. The economy's growing. So your best shot is to refocus the election onto something else, something where public opinion is lopsided, where you're closer to most voters than Trump, and where Trump is stuck in his unpopular position. And if you can make that more important than the economy, you can win. Lynn Vavrick, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. My pleasure. So to answer the question we asked earlier, is it the economy stupid? Well, yeah, the economy's still a very, very big deal in determining who's elected or re-elected president. And if the economy continues to look as strong in 2020 as it does today, well, that should help Trump in his re-election. It also requires, though, a couple of other things to happen. First of all, that the president will stay focused on promoting a booming economy and stay off of Twitter, stay away from engaging in the drama and self-imposed controversies. But if we've learned anything in these last two years, it's that Staying disciplined and on message just isn't his thing. It also requires that Democrats come up with their own compelling and, this is important, believable narrative on the economy. Or as Lynn Vaverick, the politics professor, told us, 
it may mean that Democrats try to move the debate onto terrain that's far more favorable to them. One of those issues could be health care. Voters have told pollsters that this is one of, if not the most important issue for them in 2020. And voters give Trump low marks on his handling of this issue. But it's also true that voters evaluate the president through a prism of their own identities, expectations, hopes, and fears. So if we've learned anything, it's that there's no such thing as just an economy election. You can't separate that from partisanship and identity. That's all for us today. And of course, a sad farewell from the world of intergalactic politics. Goodbye, Chewbacca. Miss you, I will. We'll miss you, Peter Mayhew. Thanks so much for being with us. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway.